maybe I'm being a touch cynical, uh, <laughs> but there does it does seem to be a bit of a far-fetched plan, is what I'm yeah. trying to say. So hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about all things Second World War, Prisoner War, Escapes. Uh, presented by me, Dave, the History Nerd. And by me, Dave, the Tech Geek. And today we're going to be looking at the story of one Captain D.B. Lang, who was of the Cameron Highlanders in the 51st Highland Division. Captain Derek Lang. Oh, Derek. Yes. Very nice. Uh, ver- another strong name. Yeah. Um, Although I quite like DB. Yes. DB yeah, is d- a name. It, r- it, rings, it rings off, uh, trips off the tongue quite nicely, yeah. doesn't it? Um, but there don't seem to be a lot of Johns escaping. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing dull like that. Although John is a perfectly pleasant name, of course. I mean, you know. In, in maybe for a future project, can we find as many Daves that escape as possible? I think we should. I think we should. So <laughs> when uh, we discovered there's none and they're all just useless. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the name. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> um, 51st Highland Division were one of the uh, forces that were uh, used to defend the line during the Dunkirk evacuation. Ah, okay. Um, in, in essence, trying to hold back the advancing Germans to give them enough time to get... Or, or as as many uh, Allied servicemen of the British Expeditionary Force back across the UK, right? And essentially, they were there to buy time, um, and they weren't the only one. Uh, they weren't the only force that was left uh, as a last line of defence, but they were one of them. Yeah. And so uh, he was fighting in San Valery, uh, and was actually slightly wounded from a shell burst uh, while fighting, and so was captured and taken to a hospital on June the 12th. So we are talking about only eight days after the Dunkirk operation had been completed. Okay. We're still talking very early in the war here. Yeah. Um, you know, only... Uh, barely a month after the phony war had come to an end on the 10th of May with the invasion of the Low Countries. You know, France was to surrender within a couple of weeks at this stage. So, yeah, very early in the war that this has taken place. And he's taken to a hospital to actually receive treatment. Uh, he says that there were uh, 50 other British wounded there and uh, the rest in the hospital were all French. So, yeah, he, he was in he was in um, hospital for a week, actually. And was uh, essentially discharged to join uh, the stream of columns of prisoners of war uh, being marched back towards Germany, uh, which we we actually discussed in a previous episode. Uh, yeah, one on um, Captain Taylor. Taylor, yeah, uh, and the opportunity that long columns of servicemen marching towards Germany presented for a would-be escaper. With, with just such little guard on there. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, I would imagine it also would be a bit difficult for, for Lang in this, though, because if he's only just recovered from injury, surely that plays a part in, in the marching as well. Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, he doesn't actually say where he was wounded. No. So, you know, it could have just been a Basil Fawlty-esque flesh wound, um, <laughs> which comes back to haunt him in later life. Uh, but, yeah, he doesn't actually say where he was wounded, but he does say that he was wounded. I mean, bad enough to have sent a week in hospital, yeah. I suppose. Um, but, yeah, so he he was uh, he joined a long column of prisoners of war marching back towards Germany, uh, heading towards prison war camp system. And essentially, not wholly dissimilar to Taylor, he legged it. 
Um, I love this method of escape. It would be my. It would probably yeah. be the first thing I would try. What? Why wait a couple of years and dig a tunnel when you can just sprint? Just be like, there's nobody watching me. I'm just going to do a runner. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's the brave option. Um, brave. <laughs> oh, it's it's the smart option. In yeah. a way. I mean, the 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 advice was to get away as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's true. So the sooner you escape, the better chance you had. So you know, why why wait until you're in the camp when you can get away? <laughs> Uh, from a poorly guarded line, several kilometers long line of prisoner prisoners yeah. of war, um, and interestingly, right from the start, he's talking about you know our our object was to reach unoccupied territory. You know the unoccupied part of France, uh, Vichy France, as it's sometimes known. He is very clear in his mind. He is heading south. He is heading to unoccupied Europe. He is going to make his way towards well towards Spain at this stage, but yeah. uh, that may change. Okay. See, you know, he rolls with his punches, and but interestingly, he talks about how he uh, he would only walk at night. He trekked only at night. And he says the reason for this is that he had no civilian clothes. However, this is actually in contrast to, you know, what others have said, whereby they've made a point of travelling by day so as not to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, because almost uh, at least all of the stories that we've looked at so far, everyone has travelled by day to avoid curfew. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and because if you're caught walking around, you know, there's, if, if anyone Guaranteed sees arrest. It, yeah, any movement at night time, that's just you've you've broken curfew. Yes, exactly. And curfew was eleven o'clock at night, so it wasn't. It was actually quite late. I, yeah, I was surprised it was as late as that. Yeah, to be I, honest. I I expected it to be sort of eight nine o'clock at yeah. night, something like that. But it was actually eleven o'clock at night. So, you know, they took a bit of a risk in traveling at night, even without civilian clothes. Yeah. Um, you know, at this stage, there was a lot of refugees going through France. He could have probably blended in, but uh, he chose not to. Uh, you know, ultimately worked out. He got back, produced a report, so fair play. <laughs> but again, you know, we're we're talking about very early in the war. You know, even though it's after the Dunkirk evacuation, France hasn't surrendered yet at this stage. Despite their initial attention to be to head south towards the unoccupied territory in France. Um, because they'd heard a rumour that the British had landed at Boulogne, you know, this is just after Dunkirk, so, you know, they'd heard this rumour that the British had effectively come back. So they actually headed north initially, which seemed quite risky given that the war is still going on. They even talk about, um, you know, we we could hear bombing going on from the direction of Boulogne and Calais. Yeah. So, So the war is still going on. They can hear bombing taking place, and so they kind of head towards that in the hope that the British had landed. Yeah, because I think they take that... That 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 sort of being able to hear the bombing as a sign that the British had landed and that there would be someone there to meet them, but yeah, and so he says that you know he he travelled for eleven days heading north uh, by night through the country, eventually reaching uh, Le Touquet, I think it's pronounced, on July the fifth, uh, nineteen forty. However, he says that not only uh, were the rumours wrong, but the coast was guarded by patrols with sentries every hundred yards. And to, to make uh, matters worse, there wasn't a boat to be found in the area. Their gamble seems to not have paid off particularly well. No, that seems like a, you know, you put everything on, let's just go north because that's where everyone is and you get there and it's just the worst possible situation for you. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, they're, they're a wee bit scuppered. I mean, they maybe should have stuck with their original plan of heading south. It seemed to be a, a sensible plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was to foreshadow. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so it took them 11 days to get there. And on the 12th day, uh, you know, having run out of food, um, two of them headed into the nearest village to try and get hold of supplies. They had some civilian clothes by this stage. 
and uh, on returning to their hiding place, they were stopped and questioned by a German officer who promptly arrested them. But I did have a question mark over the next comment where he says, we collected our friend. Yeah, I thought this. <laughs> I was just like, wait, so you just tattled on where your friend was as Yeah, well? I mean, give him a chance. <laughs> they seem to have just kind of got, yeah, he's over there. He's, he's hiding. Hiding in that shack. See that shack over there? Yeah. Our mate's in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How would you feel if it was the other way around? And I would be seriously nipped. Yeah. Like, that would rip my knitting so much. <laughs> yeah, it's like, if I was the one hiding, it was like, oh, guys, oh, I just ruined it for me. <laughs> I had a chance here. Come on, you take the hit. So yeah, we, we collected our friends who had remained in the hiding place while we were in the village. So they're even admitting that he was hiding. Yeah, it's yeah. also the use of the phrase "we collected our friend." Yeah, it's not like our, our fellow escapee was also captured. It was yeah, we had a hand in this. Yeah, we we were definitely playing a part in his capture. Uh, so yeah, they're arrested and taken into German barracks actually, and I have no idea how that is pronounced. But they again, they seem to just kind of be skipping around northern France. Yeah. Uh, heading to Hesden, uh, Lille, and then on to Tournai, which is in uh, Belgium, but very close to the French border. Uh, so they have moved into Belgium, so they're kind of heading back towards Germany again, yeah. presumably you know, taken prisoner, heading back to the prisoner war camp. However, they, they say that two other prisoner, uh, two other officers had joined them uh, when they got to Lille, one from the Royal Signals and one was a gunner uh, from Royal Artillery, I assume, and uh, they'd actually made plans to escape together. And so when they were in what is presumably a temporary camp yeah. in Tournai, I think it's pronounced Tournai, it's going to be Tournai now, um, they actually slept on top of an outhouse. See, I d- how did they get on top of the outhouse without anyone seeing them? That's the question that I had. I'm not sure. And also outhouses aren't that big. No, and isn't that a toilet? Yeah, I, well, at least that's what I know. Yeah, that, that's, that yeah, that can't have been very comfortable. <laughs> I mean, can I suppose you, the lengths you go to. Can you imagine the awkward situation and of, of how you... Ha- you know when you're a kid and maybe you're up a little bit later than you should be yeah. and your parents are moving around, so as they walk past your room, you do that thing where you sort of freeze and just be really quiet until yeah. they've gone past. Imagine that same situation, but you're lying on top of a toilet and someone has just gone inside to use the bathroom. We'll maybe leave that image there. Let's just park that for a second. Just, just that, that that sort of thing where you have to freeze and just not yeah. do anything and not make any noise because otherwise the guard who's using the bathroom will just be like, what is on the roof? Anyway. <laughs> so having, having slept on top of the outhouse which overlooked the outer wall... Uh, they basically just dropped over the wall when the sentry had gone around the corner. This seems like a design flaw. Yes, I feel like the guards maybe didn't consider seriously enough... Um, the escape potential of sleeping on top of a fog. <laughs> but uh, I mean, just having that so close to the wall that you could just climb up it and just drop <laughs> over the edge. And so they split off into pairs and started heading uh, cross-country yeah. again. And so th- although they uh, lost their original civilian clothes, they managed to get more passed through to them in this in the camp at, at Lille. And so they were still dressed, you know, still able to assimilate. They were no longer in their uniform. But that, of course, bring brought with it the risk that we've discussed before about how if you're in civilian clothes but a belligerent, you are at risk of being considered spy. a spy. Uh, which brought with it the threat of shooting. Uh, you could be killed for being a spy. Um, but not for being a prisoner of war. So yeah, they, they actually walked back into France. They seem to have just sort of hung around this sort of French, northern France, French-Belgian border area for quite a while, working on... Uh, farms in the area for a month trying to get in touch with an organization that, that would help them to escape yeah now these organizations did exist 
and they certainly existed later in the war. I'm not sure how active they were at this stage. It seems quite early in the war, but they would have been starting to come into existence by this stage. Whether this was a bit early to expect a fully formed organisation functioning from northern France all the way to a, a neutral country yeah. was probably a little bit early, but not not actually that far off either. Um, there were, as I say, there were organisations starting to spring up around about this time. So they may have just overlapped. However, that said, uh, the plan that they managed to work up while they were working in northern <laughs> France, I have to be honest, seems a touch far-fetched. Um, they made contact with someone who worked for the Red Cross. Um, now, I have to emphasise that she what the what the assistance that she was about to offer was not through her role as a red cross worker this was as a private civilian and would have again brought with it the threat of death right okay um, but it absolutely was not as, as in her role as a red cross worker however she was she supposedly got in touch with an organization that was supposed to help escape prisoners get away to the united kingdom by airplane every story we've looked at so far no one's ever gone for the plane option. No, it, it seems to have been one of those rumours that went around. As in, it was a rumour that a plane was an option yeah. and the organisations existed to enable this escape. But we're talking about early to mid-August just now. And the Battle of Britain kicked off on the 10th of July and ran until the 31st of October. There were a lot of occupied planes in use at this at this particular moment in time and so so the likelihood of them sending a plane over for to pick up a couple of guys i was gonna say for two for two guys who are just on a farm working yeah it seems very far-fetched at this stage yeah they did later in the war they did send over lysanders that were uh would send in resistance workers would send in soe members and there were rumours that went on throughout the war, but as far as I'm aware, not too many of them were actually flown out in this manner. And certainly not at this stage when the Battle of Britain is <laughs> raging, <laughs> yeah. quite frankly. And so, as I say, it just seemed a really far-fetched... I mean, you know, we were told that once the harvest was in, an aeroplane would land by night in a pre-arranged area and take 30 men off at a time. The way that is written almost seems like that was told to them by someone who just wanted help getting their harvest in. Yeah, a little bit. You know, a farmer who thought, couple of hands here. It's just that once this harvest in... They've promised they'll come and pick you up. Yeah, they will definitely be here. Yeah. Um, as I say, I'm just a touch sceptical of that one. But, you know, given the time and the, and the situation they're in, it was probably quite difficult to know that that was such an impossible plan as, as it seems to be from, yeah, our, I, I suppose, from our end in hindsight. I suppose so. I mean, they, they weren't. it's not like they were located in southeast England, so weren't able to watch... The Battle of Britain taking place uh, would have been on the wireless, I suppose, but, you know, how much access did they have while on the run in rural France? I don't know. But yeah, af after six weeks of kind of waiting for this plan to materialise, they kind of realised that it wasn't. And so they moved in with someone else uh, who whose husband was in the French Medical Corps and is described as a rabid de Gaullist. De Gaulle seems to have been famous for getting over to the UK faster than everyone else, right. therefore leading the Free French. And then became president after the war and is seen as a wartime hero. I can understand if your country's just been occupied and he's essentially, he's still an active belligerent he could be seen as a hero by those who want to who want their country to still be fighting 
And so the, this guy who is a rabid de Gaullist and is trying to get over to the United Kingdom in order to continue fighting. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems to kind of fallen in with a good crowd, if you like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone who shares their ambition yeah. to get back to the UK. Um, and so they kind of hang around for another six weeks. And then there's a rumor that there's another organization uh, which would take, you know, if they made it to Paris, there'd be an aeroplane that'd fly them. Uh, back to the UK after that his enthusiasm seems to run away with him a little bit here because he <laughs> says the plan sounded fantastic but the but the arrangements for secrecy were so good that we put our faith in it and yet a couple of lines later we arrived in Paris about 10 o'clock at night before the curfew was due only to find that the organization no longer existed if ever if ever yeah (laughs) it sounds like someone who's been told something and he's just chosen to believe in it wholeheartedly yeah yeah um however despite that they got hold of a hotel they're in paris Uh, they um hung around in paris for four days and basically used the hotel as a base right um and then there's an interesting little detail here in the report whereby he says our food consisted of oysters (laughs) yes which sounds great in a way, like, you know, very high-class food here. It's considered fancy food. Yeah, exactly. I uh, can't imagine it did much for his constitution. No. Um, yeah, however, he did He did make his way to the American embassy. Seems to be a running theme here. Uh, yep. The embassy seems to have been a bit of a magnet for escaping prisoners of war. That makes sense, though. That, that's a good, pl- it does. good they, target to go to. They are a neutral country at this stage. And it, it does seem to work, actually, because they seem to have come across a British woman, uh, again, working for the Red Cross, and uh, she managed to get some money for them, uh, it, and they actually ended up getting a train uh, down to uh, the Bordeaux area. And so when they reached the Bordeaux area, they managed to make some contacts with uh, people in the wine business, and basically, from, from what I can tell, they essentially crossed into unoccupied France through a vineyard. Right. Uh, there seems to be no German patrol that was going up and down and they just kind of sprinted through what they call a small farm in thick wine country. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's, it, uh, it's not an uncommon story that actually crops up um, because vineyards kind of would, you know, one part of the vineyard would be in occupied France and another part of the vineyard. If you just kind of casually stroll through a field, <laughs> just if you would through. just... Yeah, them, I mean, there's stories of like the front of a cafe being in occupied france in the back of the cafes and you just kind of needed to pay the cafe owner the right amount and go out, go out the back <laughs> go door out the different entrance um and so this you know they crossed into vichy france through well, the, a vineyard basically I, I do like the way the line is phrased in the report where they say um after waiting for a german motor- motorcycle patrol to go past on the main uh, frontier road we jumped the barrier and ran for it yeah there's a lot, lot of running here. <laughs> Just another case of, what do we do? I don't know, um, leg it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, however, I mean, I mean, as much as the escape has been eventful thus far, I actually think things start to get interesting once he reaches unoccupied France. Um, That's where that, we've just crossed into. Which is convenient. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, so he, um, he stays in a small inn in a place called Puyol and then take a train to Marseille. On arrival at Marseille station, uh, there was a paper, you know, identity papers check. Yeah. However, because they, they made these contacts through the wine business, uh, the friend that they'd been working through had arranged with soldiers standing nearby. Essentially, they were able to slip through without having a paper check. Uh, the people you know. I was going to say, it's good to have friends in those positions. Yes, exactly. It's not it's not what you know, it's who you know yeah. in these circumstances. However, Marseille is a major part of the overall escape story. Um, throughout the war, uh, Marseille was a gathering point. 
for many escapers, many pass through Marseille, and it's a hugely significant uh, city in many escape stories including this one okay and so i'm pleased that we've kind of been able to introduce marseille to the podcast because <laughs> it will crop up time and again uh there's some fantastic characters that take place in marseille uh that you know do a lot of underground work uh people that are uh deserving of an episode of their own so yeah we we've got lang and he has reached marseille and he's got various letters of introduction, but essentially he's told that there are, you know, hundreds of escaped British servicemen milling around Marseille just now, and he's just one of many of them. Um, and he's essentially told to just kind of head down to Fort Saint-Jean and give himself up. Um, well, maybe that's not quite the right description, but essentially Fort Saint-Jean was used as a holding, not quite a camp as such, but just a place for them to stay yeah and they basically gave their parole to not escape but they were free to just wander around marseille and use it as a base oh okay um and so he was kind of recommended to do that he, he ends up spending about a month trying to find a solution to get out because like everyone else he's kind of wanting to get away but there's yeah. a lot of opportunity but marseille you know it's a major coastal city major transport links that kind of take you you know down to spain uh over to switzerland if he wanted to but yeah essentially he he hung around for about a month and he says that money was difficult um getting hold of yeah. cash to kind of sponsor yourself i suppose Cause, uh, yeah because in in previous stories that we've looked at there's been other people who's been able to source money for the person and give it to them yeah because uh, i've always thought as we've been going through these that money would be one of the most difficult things to secure. Especially for these early prisoners, because yeah. the systems weren't weren't in place at this stage really to get local currency to them. No. Especially if they just kind of wandered away, from, not wandered away, but kind of <laughs> got away from Dunkirk and the likes. It wasn't really, this, as I say, the systems weren't in place to enable this for them. Yeah. However, he, he says that he managed to get hold of some money from a civilian source and made contact with two checks stowaway on a boat for Beirut. Mm. Um, however, having got onto the boat, after half an hour the plan fell through and they had to come off again, which must have been gutting. I yeah, completely. It's, although this is one of my favourite lines in this report, just the plan fell through and we had to come off again. Yeah, it's it's understatement. So, it's so casual, but in that moment, it must have been soul destroying, heartbreaking. Yeah, oh, completely. Like, you think after a month of of, of going around Marseille. Plus everything else he's already been through, to finally think he's got a plan out of the area, just to be like, oh, we we have to get off again now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A week after having to come off, they managed to get back onto another boat, um, and but in, with a different person this with time. a different person this time, exactly. Yeah. And it was a boat once again bound for Beirut, so they steamed off into the Mediterranean. Uh, so the journey from Marseille to Beirut took five days across the Mediterranean. Uh, and largely they were, you know, they were fine. They said they said that getting onto the boat was a bit tricky. No details given. No. Um, but once the once the ship had started, the journey was uneventful, except for one brief incident when we passed through the Straits of Messina, uh, which I think is near Sicily. And basically, because the Italian Commission were having to board the ship, they were rushed down into cruise quarters and hidden away. Uh, which, but I mean, they, there's no great incident. It was just. An Italian commission was coming on. Yeah, so they had to just move hiding places. Exactly. So Syria at this time 
Um, of course, at the time of recording, is more well known for the civil war that's been raging there for several years now. Yeah. Uh, Syria at this time was technically under control of Vichy France. Oh, okay. And uh, although technically pre-war uh, France had ceded autonomy to Syria in thirty-six, it was still technically under uh, Fr- France's control and by virtue of um, the arrangement between Vichy France and the German occupiers, uh, Syria still came under Vichy France's um, control at this stage. Yeah. However, Britain was to invade not long after this, actually, in April 1941. Uh, and Because uh, Palestine, we'll come to Palestine later, but pretty much what we know now is modern-day Israel, yeah. uh, was under the control of Britain at this stage. Uh. And so it was neighbouring, and therefore, uh, because uh, the Middle East was crucial for access to oil during the war, yeah, uh, they actually ended up invading Syria in April 1941, right. and, and uh, occupying Syria. However, so one, once they'd actually docked in Beirut, um, quite early in the morning, um, his, his colleague, uh, who spoke French, went off uh, to try and find out the situation in Beirut, because, of course, at this stage, Vichy France is technically an opponent of the United Kingdom. Right, yeah. Um, so although the French were friendly in a sense, they were, te- the Vichy France and by extension Syria were belligerents of the UK at this Okay, stage. right, yeah. Um, so they had to be careful. So yeah, even though, well, even though they're now well out of occupied Europe, they're still not out of danger, or so we know. Um, so he, he ended up getting off the, um, off the ship as well and because his colleague had heard from an outside source that uh, the British were quite openly accepted around Syria. And so he thought, oh, that's fine. I'll go off and wander around yeah. uh, Beirut. Yeah, and, sort of uh, like, fantastic, great, I can finally... Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the British consulate building uh, had been moved into the hills. But that's fine. You know, they took a taxi out 25 miles outside of Beirut and went to see the uh, consul general, the United Kingdom consul general in, in Syria. No problem, you're thinking. Yeah. Um, however turns out that uh, the consul general was astounded that they were going about openly and uh, that they'd been completely misinformed and that they must go into hiding immediately <laughs> i feel like this is not the first time they've been misinformed along this story yes a little bit yeah they they, they seem to be um given a lot of misdirection yeah and so he ended he ended up actually um he parted ways with his uh, friend at this stage Uh, but ended up uh, in the company of a Channel Islander who was half French and therefore assimilated into Syrian life at this stage. Right. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so he ended up uh, taking on the next part of his journey with uh, this half French uh, Channel Islander. Um, He's always changing partners, isn't he? He is a bit. He's... He's uh yeah skips around i know everyone you know everyone is following their own path and you know ultimately you're up for your own freedom but a lot of other stories seem to be like people who have either stuck together or gone on their own yeah he's just joining up with everyone for little sections and then moving on to to other bits and pieces yeah it's everyone else kind of seems to play a bit part in his story yeah so from from syria they they want to make their way to palestine and so, in order to make their escape from uh, Syria to Palestine, they were taken about 50 kilometres into the hill in a car. Um, and then from there, they were uh, given a guide uh, to cross the frontier and taken another 20 kilometres again by car and then had to start walking. And they seem to have walked a fair distance. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of have this impression of, like, 
a s- straggler walking through the desert. Yeah, it's been a long way. Yeah. And can I, sorry, just to sort of jump back no, a bit. No, go ahead. A bit that caught my attention in this report was that they were not, they were not just taking 50 kilometers in the ki- in, into the hills by a car. It was a car belonging to the Sacconi Vacuum Company. Yeah, don't know anything about them. That's no, it just seems like they borrowed a company car from somebody yeah. and just kind of just went on an adventure, which I think is fantastic. Uh, it's now part of ExxonMobil. Oh. Um, so it's an oil company. Right. Just not not what I get from that name. No, I, I thought it was a Hoover. Yeah, so did I. Or Dyson. You yeah. know, the the nineteen forties equivalent of Dyson. I thought it was a I thought it was a vacuum cleaner company and now I'm slightly disappointed. Yeah. However, it, it did their it's it did its service in, yeah, absolutely. in uh taking them fifty kilometers into the hills of uh Syria towards Palestine. Um, so yeah, having been dropped off from the car and having started to walk, they ended up walking for, what, 10 hours straight through the hills, uh, heading towards Palestine. Eventually, the following night, they uh, they continued their journey and after another five hours of walking, crossed into Palestine about one in the morning, arriving at a little Jewish settlement called Matula. So there were, you know, I don't want to stray into sort of modern day Middle Eastern politics, but there were Jewish settlements in Palestine even at this stage. Right. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, Israel didn't exist at this stage, but there, you know, there were Jewish settlements in what is now Israel even then. Right. Okay. Um, and they seem to have come across one of them. And this, uh, uh, this Matula had also acted as an outpost for the Somerset Yeomanry, which would have been a, a regiment uh, stationed in Palestine okay, at the right, time, yeah. I would assume. That makes sense. Yeah. What, what, what's interesting, though, is, you know, he's, this has him now reached safety. It was five months since his escape and six months since he's captured. Yeah. It's actually quite a long time he's been on the run. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's travelled a long way from northern France all the way down to Marseille, crossed the Mediterranean to Syria, and then made his way down th- through the Sil- Syrian hills to Palestine. It's actually a real trek. <laughs> um, this guy's covered some serious mileage. Yeah. Um, his mileage claim must have been huge at the end of this. However, <laughs> oh. I-, I did find it interesting that you know, having actually reached... British forces. Yeah. They then had difficulty establishing their identity because they were dressed like a couple of tramps yeah. and had no papers on them. Yeah, uh, yeah, trying to trying to prove their identity then became the issue. Yeah, ex- exactly. And they'd left their papers at the consulate in Beirut and uh they were meant to be sent forward and sent onto them. And it wasn't until they actually arrived in Jerusalem uh that they had friends there from a previous posting that recognized them and vouched for them. Uh, which seems fortuitous, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, it, it's it's actually quite amusing that once having having reached British forces, they then had difficulty proving that he was British. Yeah, you're exactly right because they would spend so much time trying to prove that they were not British or anything like that. To then or trying to assimilate into the local population. Yeah, to then <laughs> to then have issues proving that you're British when you finally reach safety. Yeah. Exactly. There's a certain glorious irony of that. Yeah. H- however, there's a happy postscript to this. Okay. Um, I, again, this guy had a really interesting post-escape uh, career. Not just post-war career, but his post-escape. So yeah, he, he ended up winning the military cross for this escape, which is actually a huge achievement. Yeah. This is one of the major awards that you can receive in the, in the army. It's a huge recognition. And he, upon returning to the UK, he became commanding officer of the 5th Battalion of Cameron Highlanders. 
and led the battalion through the European campaign until uh, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, on the 8th of May. Wow. And received a DSO, Distinguished Service Order, uh, for his service throughout the war. So, he, you know... It's pretty impressive. Yeah, he fought on through the war and was, uh, as I say, fighting in Northern Europe. So he returned to Northern Europe. You know, he returned to Northern France after, <laughs> after D-Day. Uh, he got back. Um, yeah, just went back there. Yeah, but I mean, even after the war, he ended up being appointed Chief of Staff at Scottish Command in, in 1960 and was made Commander-in-Chief of Scottish Command in 1966, which brought with it, um, as Commander-in-Chief of Scottish Command, a posting as Governor of Edinburgh Castle. A post that actually goes back nearly a thousand years. Wow. So there's been a Governor of Edinburgh Castle since the 10 hundreds. Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.